Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Um, Thanks so much for the introduction. And another way to introduce us could be to say that over the decades, we've seen a lot of stuff. And part of what we've seen is just how crucial it is to engage diverse perspectives to address the wicked problems facing our country, our global community, and, and our planet. And so we truly do honor that there are uh, social justice uh, warriors alongside of us to um, march along the fight towards racial equity and social justice um, uh, of all, uh, from all parts of the world and all personal identities. Jacob, thank you for writing The Toolbox. It is truly a tour de force. It's lyrical, it's poetic, it's wise. Um, I think I mentioned to you my, my only one offering was an alternative title, which was the, the lute, the abacus, and the sextant. <laughs> I think that, <laughs> uh, that, for me, captures the fact that it truly sings. And uh, you've added to my toolbox, which uh, just when you think you've got a full toolbox, there's, there are more that, that come your way to be useful. So I truly appreciate that. If you would, uh, Jacob, please just um, let's start at the beginning. What was your why? Uh, what was the impetus, the, the purpose, the, the reason for writing the toolbox? Um, well, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. And, and it's so great to be here. And I'm, I'm conscious of the weight of the room over on this side <laughs> and kind of trying to rotate my body um, to, to ensure that, that everyone can be a part of this conversation. Um, and I will start with my why, and it goes way, way, way back to when I was two or three years old. Um, like any other two or three-year-old, I would run and I would fall. I would slip on the grass or the gravel or the sidewalk. And my mom would scoop me up and give me a kiss, make sure that I, if I was bleeding, it wasn't too much. <laughs> and, um, and then... She did something that really changed my life, which is that she would then take me back to the spot where I fell on the grass or the sidewalk, um, the gravel, and say, let's check to see if the ground is okay. (laughs) Now, you know, on the one hand, this is just a young mother. She was 22 or 23 at the time, trying to distract a, a crying child from this passing pain. But, but it really was a much deeper act than that. Uh, she was truly trying to expand my sphere of compassion and to help me as a, as a small child understand that other things deserved attention and care beyond just me, even a scrap of ground that had just hurt me. Um, and that, um, that act was consistent with the way that both of my parents raised me, and they both were social workers who worked in the nonprofit sector. This is the family business for me. My only rebellion <laughs> was to work on national issues instead of local ones. Um, that's about all I could come up with. Um, but uh, I think ultimately that's what this is about, right? I mean, what is the social impact forum about but expanding our sphere of, of compassion? So um, this, is, this is my mom right here um, many years later. And she... Um, she worked at an AIDS hospice. She worked for our church, doing outreach. Um, she lived a life of spreading compassion. And here she is, literally just throwing flowers into the air. <laughs> and in a sense, this was her strategy. 
uh, I guess my other rebellion was to try and be a bit more um, forceful in my approach to, to social change, even though I honor the beauty of just throwing flowers in the air. Given the scale of the problems that we're facing, I think we need a bit more intentionality. Um, and I think all of us in this room have felt the sense of burden of the last few years, of many crises coming together, the climate crisis, pandemic, war, racial reckoning, political polarization. Um, I mean, raise your hand if you're feeling it, right? I, I mean, we're, we're feeling it, right? And it, it can be overwhelming. Um, it can uh, easily lead us to think the seas are rising. It's all unintelligible. I, I don't know how, how to act. Um, and, and yet, you know, some people do. People have figured out in so many different ways how to act for, for a better world. And, and that just fundamentally is people expanding their sphere of compassion. They're asking if, uh, if the ground is okay. And so that, that's my why. <laughs> Beautiful. I, um, I also honored the strategy of flowing, throwing flowers into the air, so long as there are multiple strategies that we're <laughs> yes. taking to make progress. Um, well, let, let's, let's transition from the, the why to the what. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I have, for the past you know, three decades, as uh, Ian reminded us, um, been working with nonprofit leaders and their teams who have been truly yearning to break out of the box of, you know, this is how we do strategic planning. And there are so many um, kind of linear manuals of how to go through a strategic planning process, you know, step one, step two, step three, and so on. Uh, yet, uh, what I've seen over and over again is that every context and circumstance and organizational life cycle stage and leader and team and structure of an organization and so forth um, invites us into the question of how should we approach our strategic planning? How should we think about our strategy if it truly is for us an achievement of our mission, missions and visions um, to, to make, a better, make for a better way? And one of the things that we've also learned um, over the course of time is that there is no one right way. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, uh, I thought it was so um, helpful, just practically helpful to have nine tools laid out, arrayed in a framework of, if you're thinking from an individual organizational or, or context perspective or a gathering, understanding and navigating perspective, here are circumstances in which each of these could be useful. So. With that tee-up, would you uh, please walk us through um, the framework and the tools uh, as a, by way of overview? Yeah, and, and uh, I, I thank you for that. And it's the thing is that just because linear models don't always work in a complex world, because you know line, linear math is about things that are straight, right? And the world is curvy. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not useful, that they don't begin to offer us a framework. And, and so I think our challenge is to find what is useful across many different ways of right. thinking and bring it together. And so let's start with, you know, what is strategy? And, and to me, strategy is the logic we use to allocate our resources to achieve a goal. Um, so let's just take a moment first and just think about the resources that we have devoted to good. I, I mean, a half a trillion dollars every year in the United States is just given away for some positive purpose. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. <laughs> there are tens of trillions of dollars that are invested with an eye toward social impact. That's also amazing. Um, there are about 10 million businesses in the world that have an explicit social purpose and about 10 million nonprofits. 
Um, and in the U.S. alone, there are 13 million people, some people in this room, who work full-time for nonprofit organizations. So, like, humanity has decided to put real resources into making a better world. Um, and and that, that's an abundance, I think. Um, and so, like, we start with that abundance, e even though, you know, these, are, these resources are not infinite. I think it's important to remember we have a lot to work with. I, I was blessed in, in, in my career to spend time at the Hewlett Foundation and, and talk about a place that had a lot to work with, uh, you know, endowment of about $10 billion. Um, and we were the luckiest people on the planet because we would sit there in our offices and smart people from around the world would come to us with ideas about how to make that world better. Um, and very often those ideas um, were new and they were innovative, they were unique. Um, and they, they brought in many different perspectives, many different tools, which is what I'll, I'll talk about to answer Stephen's question. Um, but I was, I was struck by two things. One, like, why should I, a guy who happens to work here, be privileged enough to hear all of this when other people aren't able to hear all these great ways of thinking? But two, I also found myself frustrated that a lot of these brilliant social change agents had one single approach that they took, one logic um, that they used to make a better world, often disdaining all the other ones. And it was clear to me the world was too complex for any one approach to be sufficient. We needed a toolbox. If all we have is a hammer, the whole world is going to look like a nail. Um, and so the, the, in the toolbox, there are nine tools. That's not to say that that's the only nine. There are nine that I talk through in, in the book. Um, those are storytelling, behavioral economics, design thinking, community organizing, mathematical modeling, game theory, institutions, complex system science, and markets. Um, again, there are, there are others we could use, but that um, each one of these is a well-developed way of thinking that has been refined over the years that we can tap into, um, not necessarily at the exclusion of the others, often in partnership with one of the others. Um, and we can begin to kind of map them and make sense of how, they, how these nine tools operate that you know, some of them are really about how we engage with individuals, how we might alter behavior, understand people's experience. Some of them are really about groups or organizations and how we bring together collections to try and achieve something in the world. And then others are really about the context that we're, that we're operating in. Um, and in different ways, they help us bring together people or resources to gather, um, to, to understand um, people's motivations and the way that systems work, um, and then and to navigate that that complexity, <clears throat> um, and so you know our our challenge, but also our opportunity is like wow, people have really developed um, in, in great detail these ways of thinking and acting that that we can tap into, um, and so let's figure out how how to do that. So that that's how I think about these these nine tools. Excellent, thanks, Jacob. That's really helpful and definitely um, helps to begin to paint a picture of the context and circumstances within which we might um, think about applying each of the tools. But let's, let's dive a little deeper uh, into two of them and hear you kind of unpack and describe uh, and explain a little bit about um, how, what their intended use and, and um, perhaps some examples as well. So um, I'd love to invite you to start with uh, well, I think they're all lesser used, but um, if you would start with storytelling um, as a way of helping us get a sense of the, the richness and depth and uh, applicability of some of these tools. 
And I, I should start start by saying, you know, I'm no expert in storytelling. Um, and <laughs> none of us need to be a true expert in order to draw the essential lessons and pull some of the power that these different tools can can offer us. Um, but I mean, stories are how the human mind organizes and makes sense of a complex world. Um, it gives us a sense of how things might flow through time from the past to the present to the, to the future, um, who the characters are, what the challenges are that, that we, we face. And so storytelling has been essential in social change um, for, for, for centuries. You know, unfortunately, often it's just, let me tell you a sad and then maybe inspiring story so you'll give money, um, which is important, but, but doesn't capture the full power of storytelling for, for building that better world. Um, and the thing is that there actually are some specific frameworks that we can draw from that help us tap into the power of storytelling in a way that is, I think, quite useful when trying to do something good. Whether you're doing that, that good work in a community or at a nonprofit or uh, in government or, or in business, we're all telling stories in one way or another. So let's tell good ones that, that offer us strategic insight and are aligned with what we're trying to accomplish. So as an example of a, a, a framework, um, there's, there's the hero's journey um, that you know, many of you have probably heard about where, and you know, so many of the movies that we see in the books that we read follow a basic arc, right? Someone is, um, is drawn from an unfamiliar life to um, you know, buy a mentor or by some sort of um, challenge and then exposed to something bigger. They gain a set of companions, they go on some kind of a quest. Um, they they confront their own dark side, um, and then they return uh, re renewed and reimagined. And you know, Star Wars and The Matrix and Return of the Jedi, and you know, they they all uh, uh, Lord of the Rings follow um, this sort of basic framework, Wizard of Oz. Um, but the thing is that you can actually apply that to the to a single conversation. You know, if you have an insightful conversation, you may go through the entire hero's journey. You can imagine going on a walk in the woods could be an entire hero's journey where you are, you know, drawn into something new and provided support by a tree that's like a mentor and feeling the companionship of a set of animals and you know, being drawn to pull your phone out, but then you resist that temptation and you come back refreshed. You've just gone through the entire hero's journey. So one could apply that sort of a framework um, to how we communicate uh, the work of social change, but also how we think about, about strategies within it. I'll give another example is assigning sort of character archetypes to the different people in a social change situation. Mm -hmm. So for example, imagine you're a nonprofit executive going into a meeting with a wealthy donor. I think it's really powerful to ask the question, who is the hero in this story? Is it you, the person who's making the ask? Is it the staff member whose salary you're trying to, to fund? Is it the person that that staff member will serve? Or maybe is it the donor that you want them to feel like a hero? Um, similarly, you can think about, you know, is there an, an antagonist? Is there actually a villain in this situation? Is the villain a particular person or institution? Or maybe it's a situation or a system. Um, who are the companions? Who are the mentors who are potentially bringing in um, some kind of new insight? And that simply by challenging yourself to think, you know, who really are the characters in this story and what role do they play? That provides not only insight in inspiring people, but also insight in how to think about the roles that different people are playing in, uh, in a, different, a given situation. And so 
storytelling um, is, is not just a soft tool for around a fire. It is a way to think logically about, uh, about a situation and, and how, to, um, how to make the best use of the, the people and the, uh, the, the, the narrative context that you're in. Mm. And I know you were talking to me earlier about a, um, uh, an experience that you have that tapped into this. It, absolutely. And um, I'll share that in a moment. But I wanted to build upon what you were just sharing about the potential power of storytelling and thinking about um, your strategy and approaching a situation large or small. Um, and that is that I'm, I have been, you know, part of my recent personal learning in, in a professional context um, has been around uh, the value of challenging the conventional stories that we are either, you know, told or tell ourselves. And, um, and to, you know, bring in the layer of questioning, you know, power dynamics and how are they at mm -hmm. play in influencing the stories that we hear and receive readily, that we bristle against, um, and even have a hard time shifting in our own minds. Um, and uh, I just wanted to comment on that. One, because I think that that is a very, uh, in my own work with nonprofits, I try to shift the paradigm to the extent possible. Uh, in my basic telling of the story, the people doing the work on the ground in communities are always the heroes. Um, if not the folks in communities as well, together with them. Um, but yes, I was sharing that um, uh, years back, um, I was working with um, United We Dream, which is, if you're not familiar, they're uh, um, today a, one of the, if not the most uh, powerful um, immigrant youth network in the country. When I started working with them, they were a kind of disparate band of affiliate, you know, lightly affiliated groups across the country, you know, literally um, over 100, you know, different youth groups that had um, essentially organized themselves in communities around their uh, immigrant identity and the injustices that they were facing. So the, um, they began to have conferences uh, nationally to come together and talk about how they could aggregate their power and become a much more uh, compelling and effective force for informing and changing policy and the circumstances that affect their experience um, as immigrants in this country. And in many of their early conferences, as they were kind of making their way through to a cohesive network, um, they engaged the storytelling framework of Marshall Gantz, who is a very well-known uh, uh, leading you know, community organizer in the country. And his storytelling framework is essentially the story of self, the story of us, and the story of now. And essentially that is a, a mechanism through which one uh, connects with themselves to um, come to articulate their own story. How did, how did I get to be here? Why is it important that I'm here? How am I showing up? How do I wanna show up in, in the, my experience of myself in this now collective that we're forming, which then has you form the story of us. Who are we together? Um, how are we similar? How are we different? What are our shared goals? What are our shared, um, strengths, what are, where are our gaps, so that we have a, a, a 
complex and complete sense of the who we are as you're moving into kind of a new identity, you know, a new shared identity. Um, and then the third part of that framework, the story of now, is essentially the invitation to um, reflect on and have conversations together about what's possible now that wasn't possible before. How, how is our view on the, um, our aspirations uh, different and the possibility of achieving those aspirations different um, you know, now that we are a we? Um, how can we grow the, the we to be a bigger we? And um, how do we live into the power that we have as a collective? So it was a really um, moving, beautiful, and um, yeah, the, the outcome tells the, the rest of the story in that United We Dream Network today truly is, you know, the, they are, we have them to thank for the, the passage of DACA and for a lot of the fights that are happening um, in DC for, for immigrant justice. And, and to think about the, the Marshall Gantz's framework of the, you know, the story of self, the story of us, the story of now. I mean, the, the thing that's so amazing about that framework is that it is both, it's just effective communications. You're connecting with your audience. You're inviting them in. You're figuring out an action plan. It's also strategy. You're thinking about whatever resources you bring and, and expanding that. Um, but it's also just simply a deeply human way of... Uh, of engaging in, in this work. And even that, I think, is it's an important reminder that there are many different ways to be human. Um, and that you know, we can turn this mirror back on ourselves. And you know, think about an example I, I gave earlier of the, the hero's journey, which I think is very powerful. I do think it is partially universal. But it is also, if you think about it, it's a rather individualistic way of thinking about storytelling. Um, it's arguably a Western way of thinking about storytelling. Um, I would still argue that it's actually universal, but it is yeah. not complete. It's not comprehensive. It's not the only way of thinking about how stories are told. And like, who says that, for example, the protagonist should be in singular, maybe it should be in plural. Right. Um, and so we can even challenge our own frameworks right. um, from both an ethical and a, a strategic standpoint. And I, uh, I also love the engage, engaging storytelling as a means for developing strategy because it is almost by definition um, a, a way of sharing power. I mean, if, if you are truly uh, engaged in a, a, a process to create a collective strategy, engaging storytelling as a means of getting there is absolutely a way of, of sharing power. And I'm, I'm sure we all have had the experience where the development of strategy can often, if not more likely than not, be kind of a, have a top-down power dynamic to it. Yeah. Um, so democratizing um, the development of strategy through storytelling is a, is a beautiful thing. So let's talk about the abacus to our loot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> storytelling was our loot. Uh, in mathematical modeling, um, just to, you know, have like, to give a view into the diversity of the tools in the toolbox. Um, if you would, similarly, as you do with storytelling, uh, elaborate upon, unpack, and maybe share some examples of how mathematical modeling could be a useful tool for developing strategy. Uh, I mean, you know, here I, I will start by just admitting my own biases as a math nerd. Um, <laughs> like, I, I literally, at the, the height of the pandemic, one of my tasks I gave myself was to pick my 10 favorite equations so I could tattoo them on my arm. They're right here now. <laughs> um, and, you know, but, but I think it's important, though, to remember why math is important. It's not just important for its 
linear and strategic value, which I'll talk about in a moment, but it's also important for its ethical value. So I'm going to just briefly read um, a poem that I start the mathematical modeling chapter with. Um, and I will warn you, this is a dark poem, um, but I promise I will connect it to how it has um, power. This is a poem by Wisława Szymborska, a Polish poet who won the Nobel Prize for Literature uh, about 20 years ago. And this is about um, a death camp uh, during World War II in, in Poland, a Nazi death camp. Um, but again, I promise I will connect this. Write it down, write it. With ordinary ink on ordinary paper, they weren't given food. They all died of hunger. All. How many? It's a large meadow. How much grass per head? Write it down. I don't know. History rounds off skeletons to zero. A thousand and one is still only a thousand. That one seems never to have existed. Now, so that is, in a sense, a poem about math and the way that people try and put numbers on events. In this case, um, one of the darkest chapters of human history. Um, and there are different ways I think you could read this poem. You could read it as, ah, we're not able to count, and so, you know, wh why even try? Or we could think about that thousand and first person and how to give them dignity. And partly we do that by counting. People um, count. You know, think, we, think about that word we use. Do I count? Do you count? Um, it, it is fundamentally, are we actually applying a sense of value to someone or to a situation? Um, and um, that I believe that the use of math and social change is a way to give dignity and substance and meaning and power to situations. It is not a dry, soulless um, act that separates us from the work. It should, in fact, connect us more closely to the work. Um, and so I, 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 I say all that to put mathematical modeling on equal footing with storytelling, equal footing with all the, the tools. And indeed, what is an equation but a story where the characters are variables? <laughs> um, so I'll mention two, two equations that I think are useful. They're both profoundly imperfect and insufficient, but they are still useful when thinking about, uh, about social impact. Um, so I, again, I want to emphasize they're not, they're not the final answer, but they are ways to help us think more clearly. So one is I equals Q times Q. And by that, I mean impact equals quantity times quality. Or another way of thinking about it is that we can think about the, the breadth of impact that a particular initiative has, the number of people, the number of communities, the number of works of art, the number of acres, and then the depth, um, the quality of that impact. Is it a life changed or a life just barely touched? Now, we can think about the calculus version of that, but let's just you know, stick with the, 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 the straightforward linear one, that so much of it is really about figuring out how are we balancing between quantity and quality, um, and what's the logic of, of how we're doing that. Um, and that most all social impact can at least be conceived of that way. Again, it may often be imperfect, but it's a way to begin the conversation about thinking how we're going to stretch out that impact so it's as big as possible. Um, another equation is um, EV equals big P times little p. And by that I mean expected value, what will happen, equals the potential, if you succeed, big P, 
times little p, the probability that you succeed. Um, and I say that because you often don't know what will happen. Um, but sometimes we're able to give ourselves permission to take risks when we're able to see mathematically, oh, actually, the expected value is higher if I take this risk. Mm -hmm. Now, I may end up getting zero. I may fail. But um, the expected value is higher. I'll give an example. So you could think about someone working on, uh, on climate change. And you know, what they're trying to do is reduce the amount of carbon dioxide that's going into <laughs> the atmosphere. There might be one approach where for a certain amount of money, they could guarantee that they were going to protect a million acres. And that would lead to a certain impact. Um, it would be very low risk because you just spend the money and you buy the forest and you figure out how to kind of leave it alone. There might be another strategy where you're trying to create new incentives for people to install heat pumps in their, in their homes, where there's a much greater potential impact, but a smaller chance of success. But when you do the multiplication, you actually see that the expected value might be higher. And so this is a case where math gives us, gives us that permission to, um, uh, to take some risks. And I think that's something that we often, uh, we often need to give ourselves that permission because of our sense of responsibility for, uh, for the work that we're doing. Oh. You, once again, you just touched upon what I feel are some of the most um, deep and, and difficult tensions in our sector and also you know, fraught with uh, power dynamics. Uh, I, I can't tell you the number of times I'm in conversation with organizations who feel significant pressure from their funders and investors to scale up their impact. And not universally, but woefully more so than you'd want to be the case, that definition of scaling up your impact is based on numbers. And oftentimes that comes at the expense of quality. Mm -hmm. So you were saying, mm -hmm. is it, it, what is more important, lightly touching a life or fundamentally transforming the life trajectory of someone, you know, for the rest of their lives? And, and I'll just, you know, add into this uh, one other note, bringing it back to poetry. The, the poet Amanda Gorman, um, she says, to be accountable, we must render an account. Um, and you know that's you know one of her brilliant plays on words, but it it really gets to I think both storytelling and mathematical modeling that you know we are rendering an account by telling a story, or by saying here's what we're gonna here's what we're gonna track quantitatively, and that that actually can help us make choices about power dynamics um, and give agency to people about rendering an account on you know in their own terms. Right. Right. Yeah. And it is, um, you know, when we don't have to make a trade-off between quantity and quality um, by virtue of being resourced and in a place of abundance. Um, you know, it's a beautiful thing, but it does give us cause for pause and reflection on um, whose lives do we value mm -hmm. and to what degree do we value lives equally and what is the, the equity invitation for us to um, elevate to a common standard, the valuing of all lives, and, um, and especially lives that have been um, subject to mm -hmm. uh, oppression systemically and structurally. Um, so uh, th thank you for raising those, uh, those dynamics. And uh, I just wanted to also comment on the points you're raising about 
the second equation and the um, consideration of risk and probability of success or failure. And again, in my, um, if I were to you know sum up my experience and just put some prayers out to the universe, it would be that we have far more permission to embrace, to take risk in service of learning, of course, and ultimately um, more, more impact and better outcomes. Um, but uh, again, I, I, I'm consistently in the position of encouraging organizations to, especially foundations I should call out actually, but by, by virtue of the power dynamics in the sector, nonprofits feel this, that um, there isn't as much space and permission for risk-taking um, as I wish were the case. I, I mean, that, that's right. And you said something really important, though, which is learning. Like, risk-taking for its own sake is, is not going to get us where we need to, to go. It's got to be a part of a broader process. I mean, you can see the, the ear up there, which you know, is the, <laughs> the symbol for design thinking, which is you know, fundamentally about about listening um, and iteration. And so that, that risk-taking, when it's embedded in a process that allows you to learn, um, can actually add up to something even greater. Yeah. Um, but if we're just sort of sloppily uh, throwing flowers in the air, I guess, um, <laughs> then, you know, it, we've got to, um, we're only going to get so, yeah. so far. Well, it's interesting when I was reading the toolbox, um, one of my early questions, you know, on page 30 or 50 uh, was something like, you know, well, Jacob, what's your, what's your framework for learning? And then I realized as I kept reading the book that it was literally a through thread across the entire thing, that uh, it was just um, sort of a matter of fact. I mean, and that is uh, a fact of, I think, effective strategy, which is its strategy is not a moment in time activity. It is a conversation. It's a reflection. It's a process. It's a journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and th that was something I struggled with throughout was there, there are a number of through threads, uh, compassion, honesty, listening, learning, interconnection, um, equity. Um, and like, you know, when is it a through thread and when should it be a tool? Right. <laughs> I mean, and these are, you know, ultimately, you know, arbitrary choices that you make as a as an author. Yeah. Um, but, you know, th there is so much commonality and a lot of it comes down to, in my mind, the connection between ethics and strategy mm. and that. At its best, ethical behavior is strategic because it builds trust. Um, mm -hmm. It allows for more learning. And strategic behavior is ethical at its best. Um, you know, th there are times when the world is so dark and complex where it's hard to bring those together. Um, but I think that's what we want to aspire to. And actually, with that, I should pause on something, which is it's, it's worth noting that these nine tools are ethically neutral, in, in my opinion which is to say they can be used for good or for evil. I mean, every genocide started with a story. Um, so we have to bring our ethical frameworks and values mm -hmm. before we um, start applying these tools. Because if we're not careful, um, you know, we can find ourselves causing harm. Um, and so that ethical foundation, mm -hmm. that chapter is in the book before we even get to any of the tools, is, is so is so essential. Now, the fact that the tools are ethically neutral doesn't mean they're strategically neutral. They will tend to lead you down a particular kind of pathway. So if you're really focused on mathematical modeling, you're gonna probably be more inclined to do things that are easily measurable. That might lead you more towards direct service and less towards advocacy, for example. And so 
Another reason why it's so important to have that ethical foundation um, is so that you're able to watch yourself as the different frameworks might pull you in one direction mm -hmm. uh, or another. Yeah, thank you for that. Let's go back to storytelling <laughs> and, and bring it a little closer to home to, um, uh, to you personally. Um, we've talked over the course of our preparation for this evening and reconnecting with each other about our respective life journeys. And I felt a sense in reading the book that there was um, likely some impact on you for having spent the time you spent in making the choices you did to include what you did, elevate to a tool or through thread the, all that you did. And um, I'm just curious to know if you would share with us how you grew over the course of writing the book. Uh, how has this contributed to your personal evolution and journey? Yeah. Um, I mean, I will say, you know, it's, it's fundamentally driven m more than anything by gratitude, just a gratitude that I've been blessed to have been exposed to all these ideas and, and a desire to share that. Although also, as I said, a frustration that so often people who are trying to make the world better end up disdaining their colleagues because they use a different framework. Um, and my belief that we're going to only succeed if we draw on the best thinking um, across, across our communities. So part of what felt good over the course of the, the journey of writing was being able to say that, you know, and, and say it out loud in an instructed way, and we'll see if, you know, what ripples that leaves behind. Um, but, you know, it was such an incredible opportunity to say, you know, what have I learned, and who have I learned it from, mm. um, and how do I structure that? You know, I was, I went in thinking, oh, I could kind of, I, I've got 20 years of thinking about this, I can just write this. It turned out it was a lot harder than that. And then, <laughs> you know, in each case, there's sort of, I, I literally would dictate the sort of first round and it would be a total mess. And then there would just be a process of looking for that structure or mm -hmm. that pattern that made it intelligible. Um, and that was a great pleasure. Um, I, another thing I'll add is that, you know, I knew that all of us, and I would encourage everyone in this audience to think about these tools. Again, I'll, I'll say them one more time um, in, in just a second. And think about which one do you naturally draw yourself towards and which one might feel less comfortable to you. Um, and I did that because I actually don't naturally draw towards storytelling. I had to kind of force myself to include a story in every chapter, um, recognizing that was a weakness. Um, even as, you know, and I also almost had to tamp down complex system science, which is kind of my favorite. And I needed to, um, to not sort of overwhelm the reader with too much from that particular perspective. And I think all of us can, um, can gain from really realizing where we naturally lean and, and where we struggle. And when I've done some workshops and asked people in a room to say, what's the easiest and what's the hardest, there's almost always an extraordinary diversity in the room, um, which is just, uh, that's another resource to tap into, that almost any group of people is going to just bring different frameworks. And, and that is a strength if you can, if you can tap into it. Um, so we probably have too many people here to do that, but I'll, I'll just ask you all to do it in your head. Again, storytelling, behavioral economics, you could just call it psychology, design thinking, community organizing, mathematical modeling, game theory, you could just call it collaboration, institutions, complex systems, and markets. So just each of you in your head think, you know, which one is the one that's easiest for me and which one um, is, is a little bit harder. Cool. Thank you. 
Um, I, I didn't tell you this, uh, but I, I read The Toolbox on vacation recently in Southern Africa, <laughs> just after having read um, Nelson Mandela's mm -hmm. The Long Walk to Freedom. And, and reading The Toolbox, I mean, which was a profoundly moving experience, reading that book in the context that I was in geographically and geopolitically. Um, but reading The Toolbox also spoke to my mind and my heart. And I really deeply appreciate that. <laughs> Part of what you speak to in the book is that um, one of the reasons why I think you feel it is important to reflect on how we're making choices about our purchases of strategy is because we are in a plastic hour. Uh, share about the plastic hour and how that can inspire us to draw on the resources in the toolbox and double down on our commitment to impact that drives towards a better world. Um, I mean, this is in a sense speculation on my part. You know, there's this, this concept of a plastic hour that there are certain times in history where it is more possible to change things. I believe we're in one of those because there are so many changes happening. Um, and some of them are the, the scary things, you know, the, the challenges that I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, but, but even those fall into different categories. So for example, you know, climate change is a challenge, but it is also an opportunity to reimagine how we structure large parts of our economy. The racial justice reckoning that we're in right now reflects the very real challenges that we face of inequity and discrimination and oppression in our society, but it is also an opportunity for us to address and, um, and, and wrestle with those, those challenges. Political polarization is tearing us apart, but perhaps it can create uh, an opportunity for us to, to get to know each other uh, again. Um, and then there are these other forces coming in, um, and you know, artificial intelligence is the one that is on many people's mind right now that's just gonna shake up a lot. Um, and when things are shaken up, there's an opportunity to move things around. It, it breaks some of the calcification in a system. Usually people suffer when that happens too. I'm not saying that's inherently a good thing. But as the general pace of change increases in our society, as I think most people would agree that uh, it, it has, um, it, it, it shakes things up. And to me, that creates an, an opportunity. And, and the, the challenge is, what do we do with that opportunity? We have this abundance of money and people. I'm arguing we have an abundance of ideas. Mm -hmm. And so do we have the, the courage and the creativity and the generativity and the compassion to actually make use of this moment? Um, and you know, I'm betting that we do. Um, but, uh, you know, that there's an expected value equation there. I may be wrong, <laughs> you know, that my little P is not a hundred percent there. Um, but I still like, that's the, the, the bet that I'm making that people in this room and rooms like this all over the world are actually devoting their time and energy and heart to making a better world. And, you know, there are hundreds of millions and billions of people doing that and like growing that sphere of compassion. And so that to me gives me hope that we can make good use of this, this plastic hour. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Jacob. Um, I think we're now at the time for audience questions, and I'll turn it back to Ian. Thank you so much, Stephen, and thank you, Jacob. Uh, we have about 10 to 15 minutes for questions. Uh, we started five minutes late, so we'll, we'll end five minutes late. And uh, certainly have some interesting questions here. Um, I'm glad to be able to ask them uh, because both 
both of our guests can be involved in the responses. Both have huge levels of expertise around these issues. Uh, so here's a timely one. It's sometimes said that addressing climate change will take a World War II-like global effort. What will it take and what tools do we have to get the world to put forth this effort? How do we get society to mobilize and end our addiction to fossil fuels? <laughs> Please say you have the answer. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> you know, it's. I mean, there are some real experts in in the room. I, I know on, on these these issues. Um, so w w one thing I'll say is interesting that the the questioner said a World War II like effort, because actually within that there were at least three giant efforts that people talk about within sort of the history of World War II. There was the, the arsenal of democracy, where U.S. industrial might really shifted its attention towards building lots of weapons. Um, there was the Manhattan Project to create a nuclear weapon. Um, and, uh, and there was the Marshall Plan to, to rebuild Europe and you know, similar plans in other parts of the world. And like, so there, it's actually, there were three of them, you know, in, in one world historic um, conflict. Now, the, the, the challenge, I think, is that a war like that has an incredibly powerful story. Um, and World War II in particular is one where, unlike most wars, I think you know, the, the, the sides of good and evil were clearer. Um, and, and so um, part of our challenge is to come up with a story like that um, mm. that, that works for climate change. One thing I'm really excited about is that you know, there's now an entire genre of literature, climate fiction, that is really helping to make sense of both the challenge and potential solutions through storytelling. Um, and, and I think it's really helping. Um, and, you know, you, you see this in Kim Stanley Robinson. I mean, Octavia Butler was doing this decades ago. Uh, I mean, there, there's so many um, writers who have wrestled with these questions and help it become much more possible for us, I think, to do so. So I mean, that, that's a part of it. Um, you know, there are lots of other things that, you know, I'd love to see. Um, but there's also one thing. We actually have our first arguably real win in the Inflation Reduction Act hundreds of billions of dollars put to work to do a lot of the right things to address the climate crisis. It's not nearly enough, but it is one of the first times where we have something big enough to really celebrate. We've got a long way to go. I, I think, you know, it's, it's too late to stop the climate crisis, but it's not too late to stop the worst effects. Um, so I'm uh, somewhat hopeful on, on climate. But I, I don't have an easy answer, and God, if anyone does, I really want to hear it. Um, but I, I feel a little bit more confident or hopeful now than I did even a couple years ago. Another uh, questioner, uh, I guess, brings climate um, down to a more specific level. Are you aware of toolbox-like applications to environmental literacy programs for mm -hmm. kids? particularly junior high and high school ages? Um, I think I have a guess of who this question is from. Um, <laughs> and I, I actually think that they might have a better answer than I can offer. But what, what I can say is that when thinking about something, any kind of literacy, but let's think about environmental literacy, it is something where you want to bring in multiple perspectives um, and multiple tools, whether it's you know, how to look at an ecosystem and how to understand the flow of energy through an ecosystem or how to think about daily choices or how to think about um, the interaction between a community and the ecosystem next door um, that, you know, 
strong ecosystem literacy should have a toolbox sort of approach of bringing in a variety of different um, frameworks and, and approaches. Um, but I don't know the answer of you know, someone who's really um, provided that yet. I've, I've heard of this program called iCrest, um, but I don't know a lot about it, but I, I, that I believe um, begins to bring some of the, the, these ideas together. So, uh, but I also think that you know, almost every aspect of life can bring together um, you know, multiple perspectives and that this way of thinking is um, not new, um, but maybe we just have an opportunity to, to apply it anew. I, mean, I would just offer very quickly, um, I do go back to thinking about the conversation we were having regarding mathematical modeling and the, the weighing of considerations regarding quality and quantity. And uh, a lot of my work has been in environmental education. And I wrote a brief piece on, you know, 20 years of learning in, in this work. And, um, you know, there are some critical elements to what make for a quality sort of transformative experience for young people. Um, you know, multiple exposures, um, you know, dialectic between experiences mm -hmm. outdoors and ties mm -hmm. to the curriculum mm -hmm. in the classroom and so forth. But that is my um, unpacking a bit of the, if we were to think about the, okay, how do we design our program? What do we have resources for? How can we work across sectors with community-based organizations and schools to um, achieve quality at scale? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, how is the nonprofit industry recovering uh, from the post-COVID era? <laughs> In the post-COVID era. So you want to start? Uh, it depends. <laughs> I mean, I will just, I'll say very quickly. Um, I do think that um, a lot of organizations I worked with did experience, uh, maybe unbelievably, an infusion of resource. Um, and it was a question of how do we, in, in rapid sequence, reconsider our strategies, both by virtue of the, the change in circumstances, but because they, they did, some did receive infusion of resources, especially those that had, you know, pre-pandemic already had established a strong um, strategy. I see now that the those resources are waning. Mm -hmm. um, I think when I said it depends, it that's my comment was largely about the sector that um, folks are working in and whether the, um, some organizations discovered that they could deliver their services and programming quite effectively virtually, and they achieved greater scale without compromising quality. That was absolutely not the case for other programs. Mm -hmm. and, and they are um, now having to find, figure out their story from how they got to an increased you know, set of numbers of who they reached. Maybe the outcomes were sustained, but now they're, the numbers are going down, the outcomes may be as well. And so it's a very tricky um, needle to thread. And I, I wish great compassion for the nonprofit community in this. What, what I, today I heard the term trans-pandemic, I don't even know what that means, but like, uh, you know, wherever we are now with respect to it. Um, amen to, to all of that. And I'll, I'll add something. So when I was still at Candid, we looked at millions of 990s, the forms that nonprofits file with the, with the IRS each year, over the course of about 20 years leading up to 2017, which was the most current data that we had at, at the time. Um, and we, one thing we did is we just said, well, let's think about the nonprofit sector as a whole. Let's just jam all the, the money coming in and the money coming out and let's look at, let's compare it. And it showed that over two decades, every single year, the nonprofit sector as a whole had turned a quote-unquote profit. That is to say, revenue was greater than expenses. This was true 
in the financial crisis, 2008, 2009. It was true during the dot-com boom. Um, and over the course of that time, the total net assets of the nonprofit sector approached about $2.5 trillion. So th there are several ways to look at this. The most important thing to highlight is that that obscures an immense amount of diversity. Um, it obscures stories of triumph and tragedy. It varies a lot by sector, et cetera. But looking at, you know, at, at it as a whole, we're kind of reminded that the nonprofit sector collectively has built up really significant resources and has kind of figured out how to make it work over the course of lots of different economic contexts. Now, the, the data from 2020 just came out a few weeks ago, and it hasn't been fully processed, so I don't know what happened in the pandemic. But anecdotally, I've heard very similar things to mm. you. A, a lot of folks you know, saw at least temporarily an infusion of capital, right. either from the government or from their, their donors. But this again obscured a lot of diversity, depending on how dependent people uh, or organizations were on in-person activities and what their revenue model was. So, uh, I mean, in a way, I'm contradicting myself, because on the one hand, I'm saying, if you look collectively, the nonprofit sector is doing well, so let's use this. But on the other hand, it just reveals, uh, or that obscures an immense amount of, uh, of diversity, and it, it really does depend on the particular circumstances. <laughs> There's a lot that I could go into with you on that, but I'm not going to <laughs> at this moment. <laughs> uh, here's a question on a, a hot button issue here in town. Uh, San Francisco's Homeless Services uh, Department has announced a five-year plan to reduce street homelessness by 50%. How can we be sure that the nonprofit, the agency funds, are adjusting their plans accordingly mm. when, uh, half, when half don't report any data at all? I'm inclined to, I mean, as a local, <laughs> I, I feel like you've got better perspective on this. I mean, again, this is just a hugely complex, uh, there's a lot of complexity here. Um, I can't speak to this, the claim that half of organizations are not reporting the numbers. I mean, there is a HMIS system, uh, housing management information, something like that. And my understanding from all the organizations I work with that in order to receive funding, you have to report your data through the HMIS. So I'm not, I'm not sure about the premise of the question. Um, I just feel like I might want to hear or learn a little more. Personally, uh, though, <laughs> I place the onus on unlocking the potential for solution on the systems and structures and policies of the city and county of San Francisco. Why can't it be possible to create communities of tiny homes or whatever the model is on land that is available in the city that's languishing uh, for one reason or another? Um, and, you know, and I'll couple that with you know, the nimbyism, the not in my backyard kind of um, resistance that is met when folks with resources are confronted with the question of do they have enough compassion in their heart to allow a solution to be in their neighborhood. So I, I don't, I question whether it's an issue of the capacity and willingness of the nonprofits to report and share their data. Although I also am a firm believer, we also have to invest more deeply in nonprofits in terms of their data and learning capacity because we place expectations of them that are unfunded. So I, I also just kind of take issue and don't um, assume that that percent of groups are not reporting their data. And if they are, I would ask the question of wh why not assuming the answer is because they don't want to. 
Thank you. Uh, we have uh, many other questions, but we have time, unfortunately, just for one, although I'm hoping that our guests will uh, stay uh, afterwards to sign books. And then <laughs> I'll other, sign for you. Other <laughs> things. Um, here's, here's one about uh, investment in the nonprofit sector. How can nonprofits unlock access to the assets of donor advised funds mm. and the huge <laughs> unspent foundation endowment? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, there, this is a, and, and there, there are several other pots of money that I hope nonprofits can figure out how to yeah. tap into. Those are, those are a couple of important ones. Um, donor advised funds are a mechanism that, um, that it's sort of like a miniature foundation that um, increasing numbers of donors are, are using and there are not um, legal requirements for spending that money. So you can make a donation and get a tax deduction but not actually deploy that, that money. Now the truth is, in most, for most donor advised funds, the money does get deployed, um, but there is definitely a lot that's languishing. And similarly, uh, in the approximately $600 billion that that foundations have. Um, and the thing is, sometimes it makes sense to hold on to money for an uncertain future. I would argue it really depends on what issue you're working on. If you are supporting the arts, there's a strong argument for um, holding on to, to your capital to make sure that art forms that you care about are still thriving many years from now. But if you're working on climate change, there's a much stronger logic to spend money as soon as possible because that's a problem that multiplies over time. So overall, I think we as a yeah. field need to figure out how to take these resources and put them to use much faster than we, than we have been. And then the other thing is there's a lot more resources coming. I mean, we're looking at an intergenerational wealth transfer on the order of 30 to $40 trillion over the next couple decades in the United States alone. A lot of that's gonna come into philanthropy. Um, and so how can we be ready to, to use that money. Um, and some of that has to do with risk. Some of it has to do with investment in organizations and people. Um, but I, I think we have, I've talked a lot about abundance and I do truly believe that, but we often have abundance that we don't really use. And I, I think it's, it's time to do that because there's a lot more, there's more abundance coming. Um, so let's be ready for it. Okay, thank you. Um, my big takeaway from tonight is uh, just encouragement that people like uh, Jacob and Stephen are are leading in the social impact sector. So thank you for being <laughs> here and speaking with us tonight. Uh, thanks to everyone for being here. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Ian. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.